0: Rather than talk about research in progress, which is mostly dealing with comparing medieval manuscripts and sorting out which wording you want for something, I I thought I would talk about some of the misconceptions, myths, if you will, that students and audiences in general have had over the years when you are talking to any kind of an audience about the Middle Ages and the time period I have in mind is roughly about 600 to 1400 AD. And what I've done, well, I've thought of about 11 for the purposes of this, of this talk, but I'm sure, those, particularly the medievalists, come up with many more. The first one is simply that people stayed close to home and they seldom traveled. Modern histories have routinely presented the Middle Ages as a period that is dominantly static, in contrast, of course, to dynamic modernity. The villagers are pictured as never venturing outside their uh, the confines of the village, which remained insulated from the wider world. And the vast pop, uh, part of the population was is pictured as uh, immobile and static. This view came about primarily through the work of uh, Marc Bloch, a very important French Um, uh, historian of medieval France and England, in his book in 1924. This has become really embedded in most of the writings, general writings, of the Middle Ages. Even though it has been shown to be a complete myth, by professional historians since then. Nonetheless, you'll find an OUP book published in 2005, for example, on a title, Migration in European History, and he begins by saying that he has to begin with the year 1500 because there wasn't anything much beforehand. Um, In fact, the medieval world was simply formed out of movement, you might say. In Europe, there were various large-scale migrations and incursions of Germanic, Scandinavian, Slavic, and Steppe peoples. While along the southern Mediterranean rim, you might say, populations moved both east east and west as the Islamic Empire expanded out of the Arabian Peninsula, and of course encountered peoples coming from Central Asia and even further east, uh, moving west. The Mediterranean re- really remained, particularly, a very mobile zone throughout most of the Middle Ages and well into the early modern period. In addition to these large-scale migrations, there were sailors, fishermen, merchants plying the seas. You had the roads seem to have been filled with peddlers, pilgrims, beggars, heretics, lepers, clerics, scholars, students, lawyers, litigants, criminals. And, of course, the queens, kings, popes, and caliphs, and their entourages traveling here and there. So, in a way, you begin to wonder who was staying at home. At a more local level, there were economic migrants who would leave their native villages or towns for better prospects. And, of course, the possibly majority of women would be leaving their native towns to go elsewhere for marriage. And, overall, this movement... There are the merchants exchanging goods that often, of course, had traversed entire continents to get there. And then there were the medieval religious, the industry, you might really say, of medieval religious tourism, brought about by the gravitational pull of Rome, Jerusalem, Mecca, as well as, of course, some more local shrines. A particularly nice example I like of, of this kind of tourism we find in a very detailed account of a rather restless monk in the year 720, a monk in from Hampshire here in England. Uh, his name was Wilbald, and he talked his father to, into leaving his mother and his other siblings and accompanying him along with one unmarried brother off to see the religious shrines of the then-known world. They embarked at Southampton in 721 as fare-paying passengers on a merchant ship. From, from Southampton, they went to France. They wandered around various shrines in France, went to Italy in, in Lucca, in Italy. The, his father fell ill and died. They buried his father there. The brother, the two brothers continue on. They pick up a friend. They, uh, they go down to Naples. In Naples, they again pay the fare for a, on-board a merchant ship to Sicily. From Sicily, they again get on more ships, and they island hop over to Ephesus, and from Ephesus they continue inland then through the Muslim lands. They end up getting arrested in Syria as spies, and the story goes that there was a local uh, Arab, presumably Christian, who uh, worked very hard at trying to get them out of prison, and the only thing, only arrangement he could he could pay for was for them to be released, by this time there were three, three of them traveling together, uh, twice a week for baths and once a week to go to church. However, a uh, Spaniard, who was in Syria at the time, visits them. The Spaniard has a brother who is working for the Caliph, the, and he gets his brother to convince the Caliph to release him, at which point they go on and they finally end up in Jerusalem. They spend a lot of time in Jerusalem, visit various monasteries, then go back by ship and so back into Europe, visit the monastery in Monte Cassino. He ends up in Bavaria, uh, founds the monastery, becomes a bishop, and dies at the age of 86. Now, this is one of several examples we could come up with that would imply that anyone who has a strong constitution, money to pay for the fares on board ships, quite a bit of luck, could undertake this kind of tourism um, apparently relatively easily. And the same infrastructure that would serve Willebard, also served the merchants, the diplomats, the pilgrims, various rulers, and so on. Statistics are notoriously extremely difficult to come by from the medieval period, but we have a couple that are rather interesting. In the commercial sector of Pisa in the year 1293, there were 98 notaries. And of those 98, 75% were recent immigrants. Even more startling is a statistic from a the Venetian commercial outpost on the Caspian Sea, a harbor called Tana. In 1359, on this, in this harbor on the Caspian Sea, there were 443 free inhabitants. And of those, 311 came from northern Italy, 45 from Byzantium, 54 from Russia or Central Asia, leaving only 32 of the local population at all. So, in fact, of course it depends upon what what your evidence is, but the Middle Ages appears to be fluid rather than static. Now, next, we have here a very fine astrolabe. Uh, This has become almost the iconic image of the Middle Ages, this wonderful instrument, unknown to uh, classical antiquity, developed in late uh, Greek antiquity and highly developed in the Muslim world. And you will find it in every kind of picture book about the Middle Ages, whether it's Europe or whether it's the Islamic world. And they will almost always tell you that they were used for navigation. They weren't. They wouldn't work. They never were used for navigation. What they were used for was timekeeping on land, (laughs) for finding your geographical latitude on land, for determining the direction toward Mecca for prayers. They would not function on board ship. But by the 16th century, this myth has arisen. Even more pervasive is the myth that you were thought to be old at the age of 30, or possibly 40, depending upon who you're reading. Now this one, this one is tricky. It's a little more complex to, act, to analyze, because you have to factor out children and women. Today, of course, more of the population is living longer than in 1,000, say, because more of us survive the hazards of childhood infections and childbearing. The main reasons for early death throughout all of this period were childbirth, high infant mortality, and the high incidence of infectious childhood diseases, particularly respiratory and gastrointestinal infections. So that is to say, if you look at the adult male population in the Middle Ages, that's population, say, past the age of 10, the life expectancy was around 80 to 85 years, exactly the same as it has been in modern times until the very last few years when now we have medical techniques that have become available to artificially extend the time. In medieval sources, adult males were often said to live into their 70s and 80s, routinely said to live into their 60s, and for some, some were said to be young if they died at the age of 53 or 57. On the other hand, of course, if they did reach the 90s, which occasionally they did, this was something unusual and to be noted. Now, you would think that this would have been easily settled by the dating of skeletal remains. However, matters have been very complicated by the fact that the methods that have been employed for determining the age of skeletal remains have recently been shown to have been very flawed. In a recent study at the Spitalfields Hospital, where we have a, there are a large number of skeletons from the 18th and 19th century, for which they also have all of the written records for them. And that has shown that the methods that they have employed, or have been employing up to that time have underestimated the age of skeletons by 20 to 30 years. So, to put it another way, physiological longevity was the same as it is now, roughly 80 years for a length of life, given that the principal causes of death are ruled out, which is childbearing, childhood infections, epidemics, war, and famine. Now, the next one is a sensitive one for me. Um, The people were all quite small. Um, Obviously, they don't mean that they're shorter than I am. They generally mean that they were shorter than the average male today. This also is a myth. To quote a prominent paleoanthropologist, uh, Keith Manchester, he put it this way, of all the myths surrounding human populations in antiquity in the Middle Ages, perhaps the most widely believed and most easily disproved is that concerning stature. The popular picture of a world inhabited by small people is manifestly untrue. Now here, the skeletal remains come into it again, and they indicate that the height of men and women has remained virtually unchanged until the middle of the 20th century. Now, since the First World War, in the West, in the Western world, there has been an increase in height of slightly over uh, three centimeters by now. And in the U.S. and in Europe, as we all know, uh, not only is the height increasing slowly, but not slowly, is an increase in girth, in weight, and in skin surface area. And in addition, the maximum stature of a person is now reached at a progressively earlier age than it was earlier. But all of these changes have occurred within the past hundred years. People, I think, have been quite misled by the small houses and low doorways, and also the suits of armor. Now, it has been argued that these small suits of armor are simply an inadequate statistical uh, sampling. Small people, apparently, are the ones that we have left. Um, Ceilings in homes are often cited as evidence that they must have all been smaller. But it isn't the case that the population was smaller. It is that lower ceilings conserve heat and, of course, conserve the building materials as well. Now, on to the next one. Their brain capacity was less than ours. I've had a number of students who are really convinced of this, as well as a general audience. They're simply not as smart as we are. Now, this is a misunderstanding of evolutionary theory. There has simply not been enough time passed for any kind of evolutionary change to take place in the human brain. Again, I'll give you a quotation from Alfred Crosby, who wrote a book in 1996 on ecological imperialism. Anyway, he says a lo- uh, uh, this old Stone Age, we have to think of as being only six times as far away from us today as um, the Roman Empire, where the birth of Christ is. Now, that's not very much time. A long-lived species, like ours, he says is a quotation, cannot evolve significantly over such a short interval of time. This means that while culture and technology are cumulative, innate intelligence is not. Another quotation by another scholar. By about 100,000 years ago, the human brain was as large as it is today, which is probably as large as it ever will be. And my very favorite quote is from a book I highly recommend to all of you, by Ronald Wright, uh, with a W. It's called A Short History of Progress. It's a, it is a short read, and it's a brilliant book. Anyway, he says, speaking of this very topic, he says, to use a computer analogy, we are running 21st century software on hardware last updated 50,000 years ago or more. And this may explain, he says, quite a lot about what we see in the news. Right, next one. Medicine consisted of the eye of the newt and other such magical remedies. There is a a common notion that nothing could be done in medicine except pray and take some worthless poison, or ghastly things like an eye of a newt, or wear an amulet or pronounce a magical charm. An enduring and comforting myth to us today. And there's a particularly awful book that came out in the year 2000 to mark the year 1000 it was called the year 1000 by Robert Lacey. And he has this wonderful sentence in it. The sign of the cross was the antiseptic of the year 1000. Again, there is a certain north-south divide here. It has to be said I think, I'm sorry, with apologies to the Anglo-Saxon scholars here that uh, the Anglo-Saxon leech books do sort of make the mark of a low point in in the history of medicine. However, there were a lot of other things going on. While they might not have had antibiotics, they certainly had antiseptics. Uh, wounds and ulcers were dressed with vinegar and water, salt water, wine, wine mixed with oil of roses, oil of roses alone, all of which are antiseptic in their properties. Many ointments contain doses of lead and copper salts, alum, mercury, borax mixed with resins and so on, all of which, again, have some antiseptic properties. They had a range of painkillers. Admittedly, they, not a very good way to administer them, but they certainly knew of opium and mandrake, and hemlock and henbane and various things as, as painkillers. They used um, hot water bottles, hot compresses, so on, recommended occupation with enjoyable things such as music to uh, alleviate the pain and so on. Quite practical, actually, and not altogether uh, ineffective. Surgical procedures, particularly in the southern rim, could be quite remarkable. And they could remove a range of cysts and various growths. They had two surgical procedures for cataracts, uh, which are quite interesting. And they developed uh, uh, surgical treatments for uh, sequelae, uh, complications of trachoma. Not outside of ophthalmology, they certainly performed tonsillectomies. And without antiseptics and without analgesics, and they did Uh, And, in fact, such procedures were still being done into the 1930s in the U.K. in homes by traveling tonsilectomers. Right. And, of course, they could treat it. They could set bones, fractures, treat hemorrhoids, other such things. No abdominal surgery, mind you. But uh, a lot more than the eye of the newt. Now, while you have people saying that they, they had no medicine at all, on the other hand, another myth is that they could perform cesarean sections. So these myths are often very conflicting in their sort of world views. This is a myth also. it is asserted on the basis of illustrations of a, the miraculous birth of a mythical hero, Rustam, in copies of the Shah Nama, or King of Kings. It's a, a Persian poem written at the end of the 10th century. And in the poem itself, it says that his mother was given a drug to stupefy her and dull her anxiety. The operation was performed, the baby was removed, she recovered fully, and everybody was very happy. However, this was not done in a medical world at all. It wasn't even contemplated. If they had done it, they would have had a very dead woman immediately. But modern historians of medicine have latched on to these illustrations, and so when you, if you read a book about the history of Caesarean sections, you will find that they were first done in the medieval Islamic world, and they weren't. Staying with the Islamic world for a minute, another one is that in Islam it was forbidden to draw human figures, and I just put some up here to show you that they certainly did. Um, and very early on, in buildings, and uh, obviously in, in manuscripts, what they did not generally do was... It have human figures in within a strictly religious context. You don't find them illustrating a Quran or in a, uh, a mosque or a religious building. There are a couple of tiny little exceptions to that. So um, it, this is another myth. Yet another. There was a very low level of literacy. Now here again we have a sort of north-south divide on um, mm-hmm. Left-hand side, those are items just, I just happen to have pictures of uh, from Europe, and they are on parchment, or vellum, which is expensive. The centers of productions of those kinds of manuscripts were relatively few, and I, it appears that the general level of literacy of the population whole was much lower in Europe than it was in the southern Mediterranean, in the Islamic world, where the level is, was very high, Predominantly, I think, think the major reason was the availability of paper. And You have large paper mills established in Baghdad and then spreading across Damascus and Egypt and Cairo and so on from the end of the 8th century on. Paper was very much available, but we also know that, say, in the ninth century, we have one account of over 100 booksellers in Baghdad alone. All sorts of accounts of how you you could have people make copies for you, you could borrow them, there were what are essentially true public lending libraries. The first one that really is set up that way is in 993 in Baghdad, which is claimed to have over 100,000 volumes. By the time you get to the 15th century, you actually have fatwas with, with procedures on how to behave in a public library, and what your responsibilities are. They were, they were public libraries. They were fee-paying. You had to put down a deposit, and then you could borrow a manuscript, make your own copy. Uh, many of the manuscripts I deal with are will actually state I've made this for my own use. And they're not professional copyists at all. They're often very scruffy-looking manuscripts. Ten, we're getting toward the end here. There were no atheists or skeptics in the age of faith. Now, I use age of faith in quotes. That's an outdated term now. I think we all recognize that every age has uh, large elements of faith in it. And it generally isn't used. But since the 18th century, it has generally been assumed that people in the Middle Ages were less critical, less rational than us modern people, and that religious skepticism was foreign to the medieval mind. And this view of past history allowed 18th century Europeans, particularly, to see their society as having emerged from centuries of superstition, barbarism, credulity and this lent an intellectual support to the belief that primitive people were simply less able to reason somehow than they were at the time of the Enlightenment. Now, in fact, and here I don't have much, I must say, for the Islamic part of the world at this time, but for Europe, there's been quite a bit of interest in looking at the evidence for convinced atheists and for skeptics, and there is a lot more out there than you might think. While well, most people obviously sort of kept their heads down, uh, or accepted teachings of the church with relatively, or uh, just didn't agonize over them very much, we do have evidence of a woman in the 14th century in, in, uh, in France who simply said constantly, she, couldn't, she didn't believe any of this, she didn't believe in God, she didn't believe in, that these, the rituals of the church meant anything. The Peasants' Revolt of 1381 was was blamed on the very on people who believed that there was no God, and that that was what was uh, the group that was causing the revolt. Some asserted that the Gospels were inventions, just like any other stories. So you had a you had a it's bubbling around in the sources. It's not uh, terribly evident, but it's it is there. Now finally my last one, and this is the absolute most pervasive myth about the Middle Ages, that they thought the Earth was flat. Now, the concept of a spherical Earth absolutely unambiguously was transmitted from antiquity to the Middle Ages. And, in, the, in fact, in the mid ninth century, they made new uh, measurements on the surface of the Earth of the distance that is equivalent to one degree of celestial latitude. And then once you measure that, then you can recalculate and refine your calculation of the circumference of the Earth. Now their maps are flat because they are drawing them on flat pieces of paper. The circles around the outside are blue, they represent water. And they thought that the portion of the that you had a, a sphere, and most of it was water, only a slightly over one quarter of it would be a land mass that was at least inhabitable. So they would only draw that those land masses. And the rest of would just indicated it schematically as water. But no one in the Middle Ages, at least, no one for whom we have any record, thought that the earth was flat. Certainly not a sailor or merchant. And several arguments were routinely given for why the earth could not be flat. One of them Think about it. If the earth is flat, the sun has to set at every place at the same time. It doesn't, it doesn't at all. Therefore, what? Second argument is always given. If, if you're on, even on the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean is large enough that you can be out on it and approach a harbor, and you will see the tops of towers and the tall buildings ri- first, and then the rest of the city rises up visually, as you approach the harbor. That can only happen if the earth is spherical. If it's flat, you cannot get that. Simple simple geometry will tell you that. Right, to be fair, there probably were some flat earthers, but uh, we don't have to know anything about them. We do know of a 6th century Greek merchant turned monk in Alexandria who wrote a treatise fulminating against all of the learned scholars of his day. And he he decided to set out to prove, to demonstrate that the earth had to be flat. In fact, it was shaped like the tabernacle. But he was not taken seriously, actually. So, why are we taught? Because I find that I can talk, I can show maps, I can talk about this, and inevitably, at the end of the lecture, someone will will say, but they, they thought the earth was flat. We were told that in school. Why were we told that in school? Well... For this con- misconception, we have a person responsible, an American writer by the, by the name of Washington Irving. You might also know him for the legend of uh, Rip Van Winkle, CP Hollow, and the Knickerbocker Tales, which is a, uh, uh, went a falsification of history also. But he wrote a three volume semi historical life of Christopher Columbus. It was first published in 1828. This is a a later edition that I have pictured here. And in this, he invents a completely fictitious scene in which Columbus is defending himself in front of uh, some scholars at uh, the University of Salamanca. This is all false. It didn't take place, so on. And in there, he is arguing that he will demonstrate that the world until his day was all ignorant and they all thought the earth was flat, and he was going to show that it was was not. It is so appealing, as is uh, most of these myths, actually, but this one particularly, so appealing to the modern man that we can't get rid of it, and it is still in the textbooks, although absolutely completely wrong. Just a little review here. Here they are again. I have 11. I'm open for more suggestions because I'm sure we can get more. Uh, All of these are really as a result, I think, well, most of them anyway, that we, modern people, prefer to think of earlier peoples as more ignorant and inferior in understanding and intelligence than modern Western man. And they endure, uh, despite all evidence to the contrary. And then the final screen shows a quotation. This used to be where I got my doctorate in the States. This was one of the quotations that history professors would often give that Mythology is the history we do not believe, but history is the mythology that we do believe. Thank you.